What's up, Military Millionaires? My name is Alex Fleece, and I'm here today with my wonderful co-host, David Perret. He got fired from doing intros. We are here with the legendary Paul Moore. He's going to be here to talk to us about a bunch of different real estate topics. He's a prolific Bigger Pockets contributor. He's coming out with a new book called Storing Up Profits, Capitalize on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Self-Storage. I'm very excited to talk about that. Welcome to the Military Millionaire Podcast, where we teach service members, veterans, and their families how to build wealth through personal finance, entrepreneurship, and real estate investing. I'm your host, David Perret, and together with my co-host, Alex Felice, we're here to be your no BS guides along the most important mission you'll ever embark on, your finances. Vehicle one, you're clear to depart friendly lines. Roger, Vic One, Oscar Mike. What's up, military millionaires? I wanted to briefly talk about a service I offer that a whole lot of people don't seem to know about, and I guess that's a failure on my part for not having discussed it enough. So look, finding a realtor that understands investing and or the VA loan or, or both is not always the easiest thing in the world. And finding a lender, same thing. So what I have started doing is I've built a, well, I have a large network, but I've started to compile it all together finally as a legitimate uh, Excel document driven, location driven list for you guys, essentially. So what it, what it is, is basically just my way of helping connect you with a realtor or a lender that I know personally and have vetted and talked to and understand that they're not going to screw you. And what I do is like, for example, I had a market where I had two or three agents that I all sent the same person as a connection and said, Hey man, you know, I, I trust, I, I know all of these, let me know what you think. And they all said the same agent and same thing. So what I've done is if there's multiple agents in the same market, I choose the best one and that's who I'm going to hook you up with. But the whole point of this is just to help ensure that you get connected to the best agent. So if that is something that you would like, just go to the website, go to from military to millionaire.com slash VA dash realtor slash, or just reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook, whatever. I'll send you the link or you can find it on the resources page of the website. But look, all it is is a way to help connect you with an agent who's going to hook you up. No, I don't charge a fee for you. No, I don't charge a fee for the agent. It's just a way to hook you guys up. At the end of the day, as a buyer, you're not going to pay for a realtor anyway. So, ta-da, it's magic. You might as well use one. As far as VA lender, I've got a really good one that I work with and know very well. There's several others that are pretty good. And I'll probably try to steer you away from some uh, companies that I just don't think are very reputable or have been very helpful. So, you know, if this is a service that sounds good to you for free 99, then uh, reach out. And if not, then uh, enjoy the show right now. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, why don't you give a little bit of background about how you got into real estate investing? Tell your story. Okay. Well, I started with an engineering degree, which is my first mistake. And then I got uh, an MBA, went to Ford Motor Company, realized I wasn't really fit for corporate America. So started my own company. We had the good fortune to sell it in five years to a publicly traded firm. And I started investing in real estate to protect and grow my own wealth and uh, started flipping houses. Then I started flipping waterfront lots at a resort area called Smith Mountain Lake. Uh, built some houses. And I learned this amazing lesson. You shouldn't build your own house if you don't know how to tighten the doorknob on a house. That's just something I learned that's free for your audience. Um, but uh, yeah, did a small subdivision. And over the years, I was always kind of perplexed. Like, how do these really rich guys get involved in commercial real estate? What do they do? How do I get involved? I wasn't sure where the on-ramp was. But uh, in I invested in oil and gas in 2010 in North Dakota during the big Bakken oil boom. And there was a massive housing shortage. I mean, there were like 10,000 people going to towns of 3,000 looking for a place to, to stay. And so we quickly built a couple multifamily facilities. We operated those as like extended stay hotels. We made a lot of money. My partner went on to build a Hyatt hotel. I decided to stay in multifamily. I ended up writing a, a book on apartment investing, humbly entitled The Perfect Investment. And we found out that the perfect investment wasn't perfect if you have to way overpay to get it. And so we expanded at that point out into self-storage and mobile home parks, RV parks, some other asset types. And we have uh, my company has five funds managing uh, investments in those spaces. Wow, that's a lot of funds. Very impressive. Serial entrepreneur. I love it. 
right before the, we got in the show, though, I want to preface this. You said um, you want to talk or you recently gave a talk about why real estate's a boring investment and why that's a good thing. And uh, would, is that something you'd like to expand on a little bit? Could you could you talk about yeah, that? Yeah, you know, it's not, exact, it's not exactly. So I, I will say it this way. So I was a, I am so glad you asked, Alex, because I was a serial entrepreneur for years. I thought about having a serial entrepreneur business card. And I was proud of that. I should have had a card that said certified shiny object chaser, because that's what I did. And I lost, I mean, literally in two deals alone, I think I lost millions of dollars because I got distracted. You know, uh, Gary Keller and Jay Papazon in their amazing book, The One Thing says, you know, they, they say, if it, he who chases two rabbits catches neither. And so I found out, you know, for years, I thought that investing should give me the same excitement that being an entrepreneur did. But that was a lie. Paul Samuelson is the first economist uh, from the US to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And he said, investing should be boring. It should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. He said, if you really want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. And that was not my attitude. I wanted excitement. And so even when something, when I invested in something and built something and got it up and running, if I got bored, I would turn my attention on something else. So like when we were doing those amazing multifamily properties in North Dakota, I, it was going well. So I turned my attention to something ground up like a wireless internet company that was a complete mistake. And so over the years, I found that I was losing money by chasing shiny objects. And I found out, you know, honestly, I would rather be boring. George Soros, I think he's running for Antichrist or something. You shouldn't put that on the air. But <laughs> seriously, George Soros, did I say that? Seriously, oh, Soros, we don't censor anything here. So we're going to snip that <laughs> oh, up. No, I'm gonna gonna it's the trouble. <laughs> so no, seriously, George Soros is an amazing investor in his 90s. And he said, if you're having fun, if you're excited, you're you're probably not investing. Investing should be boring. And so that's the conclusion I've come to. And I found that being quote bored allows me to be an expert because I really drill down. I don't chase shiny objects. I stay in my lane. I stay focused. Been doing that for a number of years now. And it's just been a great relief. And it gives me time for my family. It means I'm not always in startup mode, always, you know, in the plane, you know, the jet taking off, using all of its energy to get off the ground. And uh, it's, it's not as exciting as chasing something new, but it is a whole lot more profitable. Uh, I, I love this. And I think, I, I think a lot of people are suffering from the shiny object syndrome right now, or they're, they feel like real estate is really exciting. Uh, David is the king of shiny object syndrome. He's got his hands in everything. I'm pretty bad myself. Um, I started out real estate, you know, Hey, look, buy one of these and sit on it and don't think about it. Really, really, really boring. And I find myself getting caught up in all the excitement because, uh, you know, it's really popular right now. Do you think that the current trend makes things more popular and that it's just part of the cycle and that when maybe the cycle is over, people will realize that kind of advice? Because um, Buffett says the same thing, right? Just, you know, buy, buy once and sit on it forever kind of investing is right. seems to be the, the ongoing, the best wisdom. Yeah. You know, uh, I tell you what, there's never been a better time, in my opinion, to buy and sit on something for a while. I mean, think about it. We have the lowest interest rates, at least in general, in 5,000 years of earth history. And that's been documented. We also have something going on that we haven't seen ever before that to my knowledge, and that is we have high inflation at the same time, we have these low interest rates. So this combination of low interest rates means and high inflation means this, you can lock in for say 10 or 12 years or even 30 in residential real estate, you can lock in your highest payment at a very historically low rate, but yet you can allow inflation to allow you to increase rev rents and revenue and dramatically increase your wealth. While, you know, in the past we heard inflation was all bad, maybe Maybe it's not if you handle it right. Certainly in a vacuum, I think, you know, on, on in a piece of debt against a real asset, I think real, I think inflation is going to be really good. Uh, it's the, you know, the cost of living for everybody else who's not buying real estate is where I, where I worry. Um, right. but, I, but I do love that advice. So let me ask you another question. 
you interact with uh, bigger pockets quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to s- try to say this diplomatically, but it is not my strong suit. The age demographic of bigger pockets is probably a bit younger than you. I'm younger I, than I look. I, <laughs> um, I, what I mean is um, that site, and look, I love bigger pockets, is mostly what I call um, the blind leading the blind. It's yeah. people who have succeeded for three years teaching people who have just got into it six months ago. Yeah. And um, there's not that much, there's not that many outliers. Uh, meaning there's not that many people on that site that have been investing since before the crash, which is basically how I determine whether somebody's been good or lucky. Um, if you've only been doing this in an up market, then I, I don't know if I can trust you or not, but you've certainly been doing it since before this up market. So um, yeah. how does that interaction work? Because there's, there's not many people who have that experience level like you. Alex, that's a fabulous question. And honestly, in, in an age when everybody's making huge profits, it's really, it's easy to devalue experts. In fact, there's a a book called the death of expertise or the death of experts. And it says basically if everybody's benefiting equally, then how can you tell the experts from the amateurs? And I on bigger pockets, I'm surprised no one's attacked me yet. Um, I call people who weren't even in real estate five or six years ago, who are now gurus teaching other people. Uh, I call them new ruse, you know, new gurus. And I'm trying to coin that phrase, and I'm hoping your amazing audience will help me coin this phrase. But um, seriously, you can't tell experts from successful or lucky amateurs. And, um, you know, there's going to come a day, like Buffett said, you know, the rising tide has lifted all these boats, but someday the tide's going to go out and then we'll see who's skinny dipping. So I figured this out a few years ago because I read a, I read a, a lot of books and I really Mm -hmm. like books. Um, You said the word expert, but that's not really what I'm after. Personally, I'm after wisdom, which Mm -hmm. mm, maybe we can pick, pick hairs on what the difference is, but um, certainly this culture and and in the economy, we, people have given up on wisdom and they're really about the shiny object, right? What can I make, you know, triple percent increases on and how do I get rich tomorrow? And it's all really exciting. And they've sort of dismissed this um, what I consider wisdom, which is, you know, investing should be boring. And they've invested, they've, they've dismissed a lot of the old knowledge and they've gotten, you know, whatever's, whatever's shiny. And it is a lot of, um, you know, I started in, I personally started in real estate in 2014, which was late um, in terms of the, the foreclosure boom. And then I look back, the more I learn, I'm like, you know what, I'm lucky. I don't know how much I know. Let me sit back and learn a lot. And it's just interesting to see. I don't see that many people from before the 08 crash teaching I see a lot of people who got into this in 2019 teaching. Yeah. And so um, I, I, I'm glad that you haven't had any troubles interacting with people, but it's, it's good to see some, some faces with experience. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a comment on that. So the, I, I'm in a mastermind with eight amazing guys, uh, seven amazing guys than me, but uh, they're actually all like just making millions of dollars. And literally these guys are great high integrity guys, but only one of them, uh, of the seven, only me and one other guy have been in real estate since before the 2008 crash. It's possible some of them were still in high school then, and they're crushing it and they're doing all the right things from what I can tell. But I don't know that they've been tested in the fire of what could come. And so to answer your earlier question, Alex, I think being older and, and having speaking from this Buffett type perspective and hopefully, you know, at least using their the wisdom I've learned from Buffett and others, um, I'm able to speak into the life and uh, of these people on bigger pockets. And some of them recognize that. And a lot of investors have actually come invested with us because they recognized I was saying something different. Um, again, you know, first, just from my experience, my learning, and, and you got to understand, like our demo is geared towards new, um, young service members or people who just get out of the military, yeah. uh, who are trying to turn their finances around. So maybe not high, not a lot of high level investors, maybe I don't want to, you know, paint do broader brunch, but, but, but generally younger people. And, you know, uh, I was young once, I, I assume you were like, we generally take wisdom and we, um, it's very easy to negate it. It's very easy to look at it and be like, you don't know anything. I know everything. Oh, yeah. So easy. And so what's going to happen to these people? And this is why I really bring this up because like, I want people to listen to Paul because um, you know, the older I get, the more I'm like, bro, wisdom and experience is worth more than fancy language and, and shiny objects like forever. And you know, for our young demo, 
um, to hear something like, you know, real estate should be boring. Investing should be boring. The, the turnoff, the ability to, or the, the instinct to turn that off or say like, that's not for me is, um, probably easy, but man, it's really the most valuable thing is that wisdom and experience way more than the, the, the triple percent returns that you might get from some speculative thing, but just I because agree. you're, you're up 15% in a market that's up 20. That doesn't make you good. <laughs> Especially with inflation, when the real value of your money's break even at 15, you know? So, I mean, we haven't seen this happen yet. We got, this is a, what, a $10 trillion bill from Zimbabwe. I, I don't think <laughs> I that we're going to lay it around. Really? I, I, I don't think we're going to see that, but you know, Guys, seriously, when Warren Buffett was 69, he was a kid, right? At 69, they were starting to call him senile in, in uh, 1999. He was laughed at, mocked, marginalized because they said he was senile. He had completely missed the tech boom. And he got up at Sun Valley, Idaho with his little um, annual meeting every June of billionaires. And he said, guys, I'd rather invest in Wrigley than in the internet, because I don't know where the, where tech and where the internet will be in 10 years. I do know how people will be chewing gum. I'll continue to be boring. You guys go ahead and have fun. He said, don't forget though, that in the short run, the stock market is like a voting machine. In the long run, it's like a weighing scale. In the short run, the voting machine just votes for what's popular, what's shiny, what's exciting. And of course, a year and a half later, in March of 2000, the tech bubble burst and Buffett was proved right yet again. And all those people who were, you know, these new billionaires were, you know, delivering pizzas. Yeah. So fascinating. Um, speculation versus investing. I really, really, really try to be an investor and never a speculator. It is very difficult. I have a huge ego. I have a lot of friends who are um, winning and I want to get that FOMO. Uh, and it's really easy to be like, I want to get ahead of the next big opportunity rather than say, I want to stay, you know, I want to stay with what is tried and true. Uh, my, my intellectual hero, a guy named Nassim Taleb, he goes, you, you never take on risk of ruin. And, you know, people who have their whole, it's so interesting. I, I know people who have their entire portfolios in cryptocurrencies. And then you have guys like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett who are like, I wish they would just ban it. There's no, there's nothing. It's terrible investment. And so I'm like, one of them is right. And, you know, it's okay for Buffett to be wrong. He's been wrong before, mm -hmm. yeah. but it's also, it's very similar to the tech bubble where it's like a lot of speculation, a lot of mania. In 2001, we had just had, um, we didn't have this, the tradings on the phones yet, but we had, um, E-Trade had just come out. Mm. And so for the first time, somebody could get on the internet and for $6, make a, a trade. And so the liquidity rushed into the market like never before. And I think we're seeing that same thing with Robinhood right. and these crypto apps where a kid can get on there with a little bit of money and do micro trades. And so you have all this liquidity and it makes it, really, really speculative. I don't want to say bubbles, but pot potentially bubbles. So it's really interesting times. It really is. And it's funny you mentioned Nassim because I was actually speaking at an anti-fragile conference in Dallas uh, two weeks ago. So uh, I've read all his books twice. I talk about him every day. He's my hero uh, of heroes. They're on the bookshelf back there, I think. They Once used to be. Next them. time you go, please invite me. I want to go to his co conference in uh, New York the real world risk Institute, but it's like $8,000. Oh, and just to be clear, it wasn't Nassim's conference. It was somebody using his anti-fragile theme to, to do their own conference, but it was awesome. Still probably my people. Yeah, probably. I think you'd like these guys. Um, let's talk about self-storage. I love the title of your book. I love, love, love it. I am sort of a, um, uh, anti-consumerist type of, I'm like, you know, I have a, you know, it's easy to critique America and be like, you guys need all this. You do not need all this stuff, but they're going to buy right. it anyways. And they're going right. to store it in Paul's, um, uh, in Paul's self-storage facilities. And then when the big explosion happens and they downsize their house, they're going to store all that stuff in Paul's storage as well. So it's pretty yeah. re uh, recession resistant. Yeah, it, it really is crazy. I love self-storage for that reason. That's one of many. Um, you know, in good times, people are filling up their Amazon and Walmart carts, and we may be skeptical of this, but it's really happening. And people need a place to store their stuff. In bad times, people are downsizing uh, or they're getting, you know, they have death, divorce, dislocation, downsizing, and they're, you know, are needing a place to store their stuff. And for a small price, they can store it rather than get rid of it. 
Uh, what, what happened in COVID? Well, COVID struck and right away we have thousands, tens of thousands of college students storing their stuff. Not sure if they're, you know, going to be coming back when we flatten the curve in two weeks. Did that happen? And uh, also, uh, and then later we have, you know, wholesale mass migration from New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco to Montana, Utah, Texas, and Florida. And people need a place to store their stuff along the way. And we have restaurants, bars closing, other types of, you know, offices downsizing as people work from home and people are storing their stuff. And so it really is recession resistant. The thing I love best about self-storage. Well, one more thing first is the prices are really inelastic. I mean, think about it. I mean, if I'm renting a thousand dollar apartment from you, David, and, um, you raise the rent 6%, I might leave rather than pay the extra 60 bucks a month, $720 a year from signing that lease. But with a month to month self-storage lease, if you raise my rent, you know, 6%, I'm paying a hundred bucks. It's going to go to 106. I get irritated, but then I forget about it until the next time you raise it and it hits my credit card at $113 next time. So people aren't usually going to spend a weekend, rent a U-Haul, get their buddies together to move their junk, excuse me, their treasures down the street just to save six bucks a month. Um, my favorite thing about self-storage is it's extremely fragmented, unlike multifamily. Uh, I love multifamily, wrote a book on it, but uh, self-storage, you know, there's 53,000 facilities in the U.S. That's about the same as Starbucks, Subway, McDonald's combined, but 75% or so are run by independent operators. And two of every three of those are actually mom and pop operators. They typically don't have the desire, the resources, or the knowledge to improve the asset, drive higher income, and maximize the value for their investors. So acquire, and they, they don't need to. They've already seen the price of their uh, self-storage facility double in the last five years just because of the market rise. And so they're sitting, they can be mediocre and be sitting on a very valuable asset an expert or excuse me, a wise operator can walk in buy, yep. buy that self-storage facility, upgrade it and create an incredible situation for their investors. And that's what, that's the type of deals we like to invest in. Self-storage has been called the new hotness for a few years now. Is it still fragmented the way it was six years ago? Yeah, it's not as fragmented. I mean, there, there are institutional buyers and these large regional players like we invest with who are buying these up. And so it's becoming less fragmented every year. And just like, you know, there was a day in my life, you guys might remember when the last World War I veteran died, there was no more on the planet. Well, it's going to be that way with self-storage eventually, but thankfully that day is not today. I, had a, I helped a buddy buy one. And, oh, David, would you like to speak? It is your, you're here too. I, I am. And I am going to say something for the first time th today. <laughs> um, so one of the things I love about cell storage is the fact that you can uh, like, so with a, an apartment, right? We all know about evictions and turnovers and all this other craziness. That's a miserable experience with self-storage from what I understand. And I mean, it might be different in, in different areas. You can auction off, you know, if somebody just leaves it locked and whatever, you can literally make money from the eviction process, which is great. Cause I mean, even when I have tenants die, I have to go pay for storage. Like it's like, I, it's like this unavoidable expense for me, but on the, at running a self-storage, it's like, it's like the one world where you can actually profit on a turnover. You know, it's amazing. During COVID, you couldn't evict tenants from a lot of apartments, but we could always evict people from self-storage because it wasn't a person you were moving out. And we had the leverage of having their stuff. And so it was pretty easy to get people to pay. And then, like you said, as a last resort, we can auction off their stuff and move on. And so it's it, you know, really great business in a lot of ways. Yeah, I love this. Uh, you mentioned RV parks too. Have you have you had much experience with that? That's what I've been moving towards um, recently. Guys, RV parks are where self storage and uh, maybe apartments were twenty or thirty years ago. You, David, we need to powerful. take that little soundbite 
No, I need you, you can't to have give it. it to me so I can market it for my company. Sorry, Paul. Because <laughs> we are moving heavy into RVs. We've been doing um, we've been doing multifamily, C-class multifamily value add for the last eight years because it was, you know, a lot of the same things, fragmented, a lot of room for growth, low interest rates. Um, inflation, you know, buys you some um um some rent increases. But now we look and we we say we got to pivot because I'll, I'll, investing is boring, but you do have to pivot when the market tells you to pivot. Right. And I think we're going to pivot out of multifamily and we're looking at self-storage and going, Paul Moore has already dominated it. I don't want to compete with um, a Paul Moore or, or a lot of these other uh, people, but RV parks, I feel are really behind that curve and the RV industry is booming. And so we went off and got seven parks and got 20 more million in LOI under uh, right now. And, uh, Seriously, for 2020? Oh, we are going hard. Yeah, let's talk. if you want to yeah, talk about should, RV parks, let's that go. is awesome. Yeah, uh, wow. but I'm glad to hear you say that because that's what we feel, and that's the way, the pitch that I've been doing is RV parks are what uh, multifamily and self storage was eight years ago. Fragmented, um, you know, it's a, a growing industry, and you get a lot of the same benefits. Where you know, I own the pad, not not the vehicle. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. And there's so much we could say about this. I'll say this, that um, we've been interested in RV parks for years. So our company, Wellings Capital, we go out and find expert operators who've been in business, or at least their principals have been since before the Great Recession 14 years ago. And we invest heavily with them and give them the equity they need to grow. Well, we couldn't find anybody in RV parks, guys. I mean, we spent I mean, we, we weren't looking hard the whole time, but for the last few years, we've been very interested. We've been actively investing in mobile home parks uh, with apartments. You've got to figure out, you got to spend a lot of time just to figure out who the, you know, the newbies, excuse me, the new roos are and who the uh, real wise guys are, the real wisdom experts. But with RV parks, we didn't even have any choices. We couldn't find anybody who had been doing it systematically with a team, technology, and track record that we wanted to see to invest in RV parks. We did finally find somebody, but um, two of the three big companies that were crushing in this arena had already been acquired by um, uh, Sun Communities. And so there was only one to choose from so far. I hope there's others out there. And if you're out there, get hold of us because we're interested in uh in this whole space and we think it is incredible incredible runway ahead of it have you heard of climb capital uh, he said before the recession yeah but he said he couldn't find anybody <laughs> oh oh i mean i'm gonna jump into it next week Paul. So let's talk <laughs> okay let's talk yeah climb capital climb no i have not oh, okay should i yeah of course uh, yeah. here comes we the are the pitch. premier rv operators in the Sun Belt. this is a non-pitch show alex <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Okay. okay. Uh, just teasing. I'm just, I'm just making uh, I'm, I'm just, yeah. let, let it out. Let yeah. it out. Look, I'm being ridiculous. Can't help myself. Wouldn't want to, if I could, <laughs> you can still be premier. So, new. so Alex is on a team with a good friend of ours who has done, uh, like you said, C-class multifamily and is now mm. pivoting into and dominating or going to be dominating the RV space. So uh, nice. Alex, if you want to talk about it, you, I'm, I will not bleep you out entirely no it's okay we're here for paul i'm here for you paul it's not about I'm me i'm here for you guys everybody oh. yeah you're a great guest actually yeah, everybody right. else um has to deal with me all the time david he is so sick of me so i like to make it about the guest <laughs> well anyway i i love rv parks yeah they're they're pretty sweet I, you know it's funny i when everyone started when everyone i say everyone when alex and and the friends on the team started talking about them i started looking around my market and realized there really aren't any <laughs> So there's probably an opportunity there, but I don't know that yeah. building an RV park as my first go is going to be what I do. Uh, however, I am looking at what was, what was once a mobile home park and is now pretty much one trailer on a bunch of pads. So really, wow, there's potential. I just don't think it's close enough to the highway to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, I stayed at one last week that was an hour, almost an hour west of Fort Worth. And it was out in the middle of the sticks, guys. And it was, cru they were crushing it. They, they put in a, so they bought it. I don't remember the exact price, but I think let's say it was like $4 million. They had like an extra hundred or 200 acres with it. They could expand. They put in like a $600,000 lake. They put in like a $200,000 with it. 
structure. You guys know what wibbits are? I'm, wibbits I'm, are I'm imagining big... you're not talking about when you huff like brown bags. No, it's a whippet. No, not, <laughs> not at all. That's, yeah, whippet. No, a whippet. Maybe I'm even saying it wrong. It's a big structure that's cha- like it's anchored down in a lake. And you can actually let kids like, or adults and kids like run up around, they run around it, they dive off, they jump off, there are slides off of it. It's like a, I don't even know how to spell it, but uh, at any it's rate, like a, it's like, it looks like a moon bounce on the lake. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. And so I'm looking part, at one now. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So this is like, like, this is like a destination park. People would go there. They bring their RV. They, you know, they pay uh, an extra fee for like a resort fee, just like you do at a nice hotel, you know, it might be $8 per person per day, but that gives them uh, ceramics. And of course they have to buy the ceramics t-shirt painting. They've got to buy the t-shirts. It gives them a uh, moonwalk, uh, putt, putt golf, uh, hay rides, uh, movie theater, uh, the Wibbits, the Wibbits, they charge like $15 per hour to jump on these. They're renting this Wibbit that costs 200,000. They're renting it for a thousand dollars an hour. Talk about a value add. Uh, I mean, just on and on and on. And, and, you know, I mean, this park is crushing it. I mean, they're, the, I, I just, I just can't believe how, what a great opportunity this is. Yeah. So that's what we've been doing is um, the resort RV parks. Yeah. I thought it was just, you know, you get an RV park, you get a bunch of pads, but it's like, no, we build pools, clubhouses, volleyball courts. We build man-made lakes. Um, you put fish in them. I mean, people go fishing. It's a really interesting, it was kind of, it was new to me too. It was very like, I didn't think that was a thing, but it is an extremely big thing. Yeah. A lot of amenities that go with them. And then still, when you're at the end of the day, you really just own the pad. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're buying these rural areas, I mean, have you, you guys have certainly seen the bonus depreciation. You can get the, the, the paper losses from mobile home parks and RV parks are amazing. Who would yeah, have we thought? Started, yeah. We're starting to buy little um, tiny homes on wheels and we mm-hmm. put them on the parks. We rent them out as an Airbnb, but they're hundred percent to take hundred percent depreciation. Nice. Yeah. Yep. So there's so many interesting things you can do. I mean, think about this. So you got the tiny home, you've got the pad, you know, uh, you might have what $80,000 and all that for $1,200, you put a little dog pen around it on the outside and you rent that for another 30% on top of the normal daily rate for the dog pen. So it's, you know, $60 extra a day for that. These yeah. value adds are pretty amazing. Yeah. Wait, I'm starting to sound excited. I yeah. I was gonna I, say that this isn't boring enough. This is you guys, yeah. That, you guys need to you guys need to chill. You guys you should both back out of the RV world, chill. and I will go get excited. You guys will right. be boring. We're, yeah, we're, forget about RVs. <laughs> uh, it's funny because I and this whole that whole conversation about speculation and and excitement is is actually really really well timed because I'm looking at a building for the second time today that. It, it's not super boring. Uh, I think there's a huge potential, but I mean, I've spent probably 12 hours with city planning, downtown association, uh, building development, you know, all the things this week. And yeah, I don't know. It's like, it, it's a good, it's a good reminder, another check and balance to be like, okay, you know, how much of this is speculation, how much it, it's a, basically an old yeah. 20,000 square foot vacant building at a great location downtown that, uh, you know, your retail and office on the first floor, lofts on the second two, second floor, third floor, uh, probably storage in the basement. Cause it's like, I mean, it's, it's a nice dry basement with like nine foot ceilings and thinking like, Oh, you pretty much put like dog cage style, like storage through it. Cause it's all protected from the outside. I don't know. Lots of things, but I haven't figured it out. So, um, might be a little too exciting for yeah well i mean it sounds great where are you located southwest missouri okay well you know what is the difference between investing and speculating uh, <laughs> hope <laughs> hope yeah there you go i mean so what, what I, is it who is it who says hopium i forget who it who hopium it yeah i don't hopium. know who that is but i view it as this you know i used to think wealth was you know mansion nice car boat lake house all that but you know i i now view it as wealth it, true wealth is having assets that produce cash flow. 
And so investing should be in assets, I would think, assets that produce cash flow. If they produce appreciation as well, that's great. So I view investing as, you know, having a place where your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. Speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And some speculation is fine, but just know the difference when you're doing it because investing will win in the end. When, when I learned real estate investing in 2013, I, I was the, the overall message, the overwhelming message that I got from the 2008 crash was always buy for cash flow. Appreciation is a bonus. That was like, you know, the gist of, you know, the people who survived versus the people who got crushed. And that's when, that's what kind of, that's what I learned. And that's what I did from day one. I was like, this thing has to cash flow day one. It has to cash flow positively day one. And um, if it goes up in value, then gravy. Now I feel like people are going, well, I'll buy it now and the inflation will make my property go up in value. It'll make the rents go up in value and it'll be worth, it'll be worth X, Y, Z in the future. Um, we're pretty sure inflation's here, but we're not really sure how it's going to affect things positively or negatively and by how much. Um, is, this, is this the same problem that people had in 2006? The real estate will only go up. I mean, I know the circumstances aren't different, but mindset wise. You know, you're right. The circumstances are different, but mindset wise, I mean, we heard stuff like everybody needs a place to live and uh, they're not making any more land. And um, yeah, uh, what what was his name? Um, I'm forgetting his name right now. I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, the federal treasury secretary, he said, there has never been a drop in real estate prices, a sustained drop. And uh, at the same time, oh, Geithner. Who? Uh, Timothy Geithner, I believe. You know, Geithner, that might have been the Treasury Secretary. I might have been thinking of a different guy. But um, yeah, the guy I'm thinking of, his brother at the same time, Hank Paulson, uh, John Paulson, his brother, if I've got the name straight, was actually shorting the housing market, getting ready to make $2 billion or whatever, while he was saying, and I'm not saying there was a conspiracy. They just had different opinions, apparently. But well- you know, who knows? But uh, at any rate, you know, he's saying there's never been a sustained drop in housing prices. And of course, they were right on teetering right on the edge of it. And his brother knew that and uh, made billions of dollars in the process. Yeah, the government is in an interesting position because they have this really there's an interesting mechanism with with government dialogue where if they say it, things will go up and things are great, then maybe it might go up and maybe it'll be great. But but it really is irrelevant. But if they say things will go down, then everybody freaks out and it does in fact go down. So they are in a really precarious position. So anybody you that talks about high level, you mentioned the word experts before, anybody who's like in, an expert, especially in government roles or something like this, they always have to say things are good. You can go and find a quote from a Federal Reserve chairman before every crash and he'll say, everything's fine, don't worry about it. And two weeks later, inevitably, there'll be a there'll be a, uh, an explosion. Right. So yeah. yeah. Uh, so well, to, to back to my original question, do you think, you know, I wasn't paying attention before in 2006 to like, just, mm-hmm. you know, your, your anecdotal feel of how people are acting. Is it mania similar? Yeah, it's very similar. Um, I was in the residential realm at the time, so I wasn't really privy to the commercial world, but yeah, very similar. There was this sense of, you know, like uh, Rod Cleef, um, he was buying stuff all over Florida. I think he said his net worth went up 30 million in 2006 and then uh, dropped by 50 million in 2007 or eight. I can't remember. And uh, it was like, you know, he was just uh, leveraging on top of leverage to buy and buy and buy because stuff was always going up. It didn't have to cash flow. It didn't matter. And so there was a sense of that. And that was Rod's own story. I'm not saying anything bad about him. He yeah. told me that on my podcast. Did I tell you guys I had a podcast called How to Lose Money? I was, uh, I was the host of that for four years where we That's interviewed awesome. 238 people about chasing shiny objects how they lost money, lost time, lost relationships on the way to their eventual success. And we saw a lot of that. When, when did that air? 2016 to 2020. Is it still live? Can I go find it? 
You can go find it. Yeah, it's on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. Um, but how do we love money that podcast? He, yeah, we he he ran out of uh, subjects and thought, you know, we'll wait like three years and we'll have a whole bunch more yeah. people to interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, how to lose money too, starting in twenty twenty four. Yeah, in twenty twenty, everything started booming. So you got to come back. Yeah, yeah you got to right. get round two. I love that. Yeah. How do you, how do you guys feel about? I, I know we don't we don't generally speculate on this but we're kind of in the subject so how do you guys feel about the market going forward i mean you know i was just answering that question uh right before our call with somebody with a large investor and i said you know it's really possible though there's a lot of speculation going on and a lot of people who are newbies or amateurs who are just getting lucky time after time it's possible that inflation will allow them to continue to succeed even if they're not really doing things right. And so, I mean, let's face it, if cap rates go from 4% up to five, I just wrote an article in bigger pockets. It came out like yesterday. It says why you need to increase rents 33% just to break even. That was irritating, wasn't it? And I basically said, look, if you go from a four to a 5% cap rate, you just lost 25% of your value. You need to increase your revenue uh, excuse me, your net operating income, 33% just to break even. And even if that math doesn't make sense to you, just say 25%. It's hard to increase your rents and your revenue 25% or 33 when things are crumbling. Like imagine middle of 2008 or 2009, it would be really hard to increase your rent, uh, your revenue 25%. It's quite the contrary, in fact. So the point of it was cap rate, decompression could crush a lot of people, but I will say it's possible inflation will be their rescue because it'll continue to allow the rent and therefore the net operating income to continue rising even while the cap rates expand. And the thing that's... Oh, um, I just wanted to add that. Sorry, David. Thank you. Um, the, the inflation thing is funny because everybody sees it as values going up, but there's a difference between value going up and price yeah. going up. I mean, that's the, right. The things are getting more expensive and people go, well, my house is going, I'm in value. And I'm like, yeah, but inflation literally is the, it's the, the increase in money supply, which means the value goes down. So, uh, or the, the buying power goes down. So you right. might have more rent and you might have a higher income house or, or a valued house, but right. you're actually poorer in terms yeah. of buying power. So trying to get it. So right now, if you're buying that skinny deal, even though inflation might save you in terms of, you know, actual it might save you in some ways you come out of the end a overall like less percentage in uh, returns your returns are lower than they would well how do i say it then if obviously then if you had bought a good deal i mean it's not gonna it might buy you out of poverty but it's not gonna buy you out of um the prices are all gonna look higher but you're gonna have less buying power or that's exactly right yeah they call it uh like nominal your nominal profit would be your profit in name only which is technically what nominal means um versus your actual or your real profit was the word i wanted to use which is you know where, where your buying power actually went um uh, my son buys and sells large pieces of uh farmland or timberland like mountaintop land and he might talk to somebody who said, yeah, I bought this property for 100000 in 1976. Now it's worth 500000 Pretty good deal, huh? And I'm thinking, no, not at all. I mean, because his you know, nominal profit was huge. His real profit was, I mean, I honestly imagine it was probably a loss at that number, especially compared to the opportunity cost of putting in something that's making 8% especially once you pay taxes on the capital gains that you're yeah. still going to get to pay on that. That's yeah. right. One of the, one of the things I've been trying to figure out. So um, I, I try to look less at inflation. I, I view it, you know, long-term fixed rate, low interest debt, I think against inflation, like numerically, that's probably good, but I'm trying to think less in terms of inflation and more in just the supply and demand, the inventory, that side of things with the market. It's like, well, if, if nobody's, if houses are just flying off the shelves and the inventory is still, 20% of what it was two years ago, my gut says that that's a good thing, regardless of inflation and interest rates and all this thing. But what I've been trying to wrestle with is figuring out like, where's the plateau? And what I mean by that is in every, in every crash, every, you know, it's always a stair step. And so I'm trying to, what I would love to try to figure out in the crystal ball is like, 
okay, well, if this continues for three years and then it crashes, does it crash back to price now or does it crash back to price four years ago? Because that would make a huge difference. You know, it's like, well, it's going to come back down at some point, but I don't know if I'm at the, you know, at the top and it's about to drop 30% out from under me or if it's going to go up 30% and then drop 20% and I'm still, you know, that's the, that's the fun game. Yeah. One of my favorite books is Howard Marks, um, Mastering the Market Cycle. And in that book, uh, he says, you know, it's, it's impossible to predict when the market will turn. All we can do is act responsibly for where we are in the market today. And so that's what I think, you know, these really good investors, the kind that we like to invest with are doing versus these lucky amateurs who are just buying anything they can get. Well, that, that sets up a great next and and probably towards the end question what do you view as acting responsibly right now what are you guys looking for well i love that question um i've written a lot about this on my company blog and my on the bigger pockets blog acting responsible to me is finding assets that are very fragmented and what i mean is that the current ownership is a fragmented ownership base and then buying at full price if necessary from them, and then doing significant modifications to dramatically increase the revenue, therefore the net operating income. So regardless of what happens to cap rate, you're outrunning it. That was a long run on sentence. Here's what I mean. If you can buy, so Michelangelo was the greatest, most famous sculptor of all time. He said, when I look at a piece of marble, I don't see marble. I see an angel inside. I need to chip away all the excess material to get that angel out. In the same way, a a great operator can look at a property like an RV park, self-storage, mobile home park, and see this incredible intrinsic value. Uh, Buffett calls it, you know, buying a company way below its potential value, what it should have. And then so buying a property like that. So in the value equation, the numerator outruns the denominator. Here's what I mean. The value in commercial real estate is the net operating income. That's the numerator divided by the cap rate. That's the denominator. The cap rate is the rate of return that somebody would expect for an a- expect for an asset like this in a time like this in a location like this. And so the cap rate might be four or five percent. Well, if it expands, that means it goes up to six percent. The value of the property drops by let's just round number and say by twenty percent. Well, you want to get a property where you can significantly increase the numerator, the net operating income. It's basically called forced appreciation, where you can do things to force the appreciation uh, and way outrun the denominator. To me, that is acting responsibly. Quick example, my company invested in a mobile home park in Louisville, Kentucky. The owner hadn't been there in over five years. The costs were bloated. The occupancy was down. The rents hadn't been raised in five years, at least, from what we understand. And he bought it. He paid the uh, the owner what she considered an amazing amount of money, I think, $7.1 million. Well, he went in and he did about five things that actually helped grow the revenue of the park, uh, helped make the park, you know, a much better place to live, et cetera. And in 10 months, he sold that park. He bought it for 7.1 million. That was half debt, half equity. He sold it for $15 million in 10 months. And so that was about a 300, well, it was a 347% return on equity uh, in just 10 months. And the point of that is, even if the market would have went against him significantly during that time, even if interest rates would have went up, even if things would have gone south, he would have still been way ahead of the curve. That's acting responsibly. I love it. That's a great answer. I mean, and I think that's the right. I want to ask a bunch more questions, but we got a hard stop time of four minutes left. So David, I can can go a few more. Can you, well still, okay. But these questions are going to take a while. So can can you hit him with our, with our, Outro, you know, all the questions I had left were going to be really difficult. So <laughs> maybe we should do a second show. Absolutely. I love this. Yeah, I'm down. Uh, hit it with what, what are you asking me to hit people with? 
Uh, so at the end of every show, we ask people the same three oh, questions. We've oh, been doing oh, it for oh. two and a half years. That part. Um, if you need me to send you an email with what they are, you let <laughs> oh me know. Oh my God, you terrible person. Sorry. I was double checking mine because I thought I had a three o'clock hard stop, which I didn't. Um, so, all right. <laughs> I guess the first and most important one is, and, and we haven't asked the other two in probably like 50 episodes. So I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> really, the question is, where can people get a hold of you if and when they want to find out more about you and invest with you? Yeah. So um, I spent years, like I said, trying to figure out how to get into commercial real estate. So I've created a free course people can go through. It's just five days to, to learn how to invest in commercial real estate. I've also got special reports on self-storage and mobile home parks and other investments at my website. It's wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com slash resources. And that'll, that'll get you the free stuff. Paul, I bought your book on Amazon while we were talking, by the way. So what I'm going to do awesome. is when I get it, I'm going to send, send it to you so you can sign it and then you can mail it back to me. <laughs> awesome. Well, I can just mail you one and you can give that other one away. Oh yeah, we can do that. That sounds good. Okay. Get me your mailing address and email. All right, cool. Um, you. Hey, this was fantastic. I'm incredibly grateful for your time. Yeah, no, this was, uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it too. You guys are a lot of fun. Oh yeah. He's talking to me, David. He needs me in the ass. Yeah. I mean, of course he means you. Everything's about, well, um, no. So this is good because you are more experienced in the market. So there's a lot of good insight here. I don't want to throw. Yeah, thank you. Words, it, was, like, it was a real honor to be wise, here, man. But not yeah, a new room. You're a new Okay, great. I said, I said you're not a new <laughs> Oh, okay. I thought you said you're a new I thought. Oh, I mean, technically, uh, I by your say? definition, I'm a new but but, um, you know. Hey, I want to thank you guys. At times like this in our country, seriously, um, we really, really appreciate our veterans. And I want to thank you and your audience. I mean, it means the world to people like me who my dad fought in World War II, but, you know, I didn't have to serve and didn't have the opportunity, I should say. And, and, and thank you so much for what you did for our country. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yeah. We're out here trying to, trying to make sure our service members when they're done, when they're done with, you know, whatever the political nonsense of the day is that they're, they're set up for life and not, you know, broken, stressed out from it. Good. Good. Fantastic. Thanks for being an awesome guest, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from militarytomillionaire.com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show. Give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.